Coming up on this week's episode, we celebrate episode number 100. We made it. And joining us on today's show is the one and only Chris Hill. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. And this week, it is a special week. This is episode 100. Dan, we made it. We did. We have a special guest joining us. The voice of The Motley Fool. Maybe the most influential person to our show, and we'll explain why. Chris Hill is in the building. And we're here in person. Chris, good to see you. It's good to witness this in person. The, yeah. Just the, the podcast that I listen to every week and the intro and the exchange. And I'm here in person. This is great. It's a pleasure to be here. This is amazing. One, because we don't record our show in person very often. Most of the time, this is me and Dan speaking at our computers as if we are in the room together. But to be here with you, and I got to talk about how influential you were for several reasons. Number one, I think it was our first week. Our first, like, maybe episode two had aired. And you reached out and were like, hey, guys, the show's great. And you had some thoughts that you shared. And I was like, wow, what a nice guy. That's amazing. What, what, what a guy. And then you reached out several weeks later, and it started becoming clear that you were actually listening right. to our show. <laughs> that it wasn't just an act of kindness from somebody that was like, oh, yeah, these guys are like doing this thing. Good for you. But that you were actually a fan. And uh, in, in the first weeks of a show, nobody's listening. So the fact that you were one of those people, we are incredibly, incredibly appreciative. So thank you. You're welcome. I can confess to you now that I did listen to the first episode because I know you guys. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm, my friends have a new podcast. I'm going to listen to it. And it was really good. And then episode two, and it's so easy to just click the follow button on your podcast app. And I just thought, oh, this is great. Oh, no, this is actually good. This is, you know, because that's. That's how I, I, and I think most people consume podcasts is, is this worth my time? And it's like, yeah, check your balances. Worth the time. Well, we, we very much appreciate that. Now, let me ask you this. I'll just immediately take over and start asking you questions. Please. When you started, did you think you'd make it to episode 100? Did you even think about how long are we going to do this? I thought we would try to make it. I didn't know if we would make it, but I had gotten the advice very early that don't start a podcast if you're not excited about getting to episode 100 because everybody's got an idea for five podcasts. I, th I think almost everybody listening to this, if you're like, hey, would you like to do a podcast? Probably, yeah. And they've got at least a handful of ideas. And I had read that, and I think that that was smart advice. Don't do it unless you're, you're going to bear down and really push through this thing. So I, I don't know, Dan. Did you think we would make this? I thought we would. It became clear it was going to be a challenge when we realized we had to come up with material every week which is not easy. And oftentimes it's Monday morning and we're like, oh my God, we need to put out a podcast Wednesday. What are we going to talk about? Sometimes it's Tuesday morning. And by putting out a podcast Wednesday, what you really mean is midnight Tuesday, right? That's, that's really when it is. So it has to be done that day. Right. Unless it's yesterday or, or I'm 
peeling back the curtain here a couple of weeks ago, if you're listening to it now, when it was Wednesday morning and Ross looks at me and says, oh God, I forgot to put up the podcast. I put it up late. It was the first time that's happened. Uh, and it was because we've been recording them in advance in preparation for your vacation. But uh, And then I got out of cycle because normally it is a panic editing and a panic posting process. I know I am not the only listener who noticed Wednesday morning that the podcast wasn't there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, we're sorry. I wasn't about angry. I just thought, commute. you know, hey, this stuff happens. It'll show up eventually. And it did. And now I feel shame. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we might need to pull that job from you, Ross. Perhaps, perhaps. Maybe maybe when you're back, you can take over. <laughs> Never uh, mind. You do a really good job. <laughs> Thanks. So, Chris, as we're talking about the genesis of our show, one <laughs> of my favorite stories I've ever heard you tell is the genesis of the Motley Fools podcast, which you were part of and now are the major host of all of, essentially, the Motley Fools podcasting network. I guess David still has a show, correct? David Gardner does have a show. Yeah, Rule, Rule, Rule Breaker, Breaker Investing, Investing still there. But, yeah. but you're on seven days a week. That's not how it started. That is not how it started. It started in early 2009. And really, it started in late 2008. It was December of 2008. It was right before Christmas. Um, older uh, investors and listeners will remember that's really, you know, we're in month three of the financial crisis. And... Uh, what would become known as the Great Recession. And my boss at the time um, came to me and said, I just got out of an executive meeting and we were throwing around a bunch of different ideas because The Motley Fool is a business very much tied to the stock market. And as you guys know, as financial planners, when the market isn't doing well, a lot of people just sort of naturally freeze up and they're not interested in thinking about investing. And in the case of a subscription business like The Motley Fool, they're canceling their subscription or not renewing that sort of thing. So my boss said I was in this meeting and we were throwing all these ideas around. And one of the ideas uh, someone uh, threw up there was, Hey, should we do a radio show again? Because the Motley Fool from 1998 to 2006 had a radio show, a weekly show. It was first on commercial radio hosted by David and Tom Gardner. And then it moved to NPR. And uh, so we had been out of the radio game for a couple of years, but it was it, the idea was sort of thrown out there. And so I was involved in the in both iterations of the show. And so I said to my boss, "Well, let me think about this, and I'll, I'll put some thoughts on paper so you can share them." And I ended up writing a five-page memo that really kind of boiled down to, "If we're going to do a radio show again, it, we should start with a podcast." Because there are so many things you have to deal with with radio that you don't have to deal with with a podcast. And at this point in time, podcasting was relatively new. Um, there weren't that many out there. It was a pretty unproven medium at the time. And so in January of 2009, we get the green light. Okay, you can start a, a weekly podcast. And so we started brainstorming with an eye towards launching in February. Okay, we're gonna, what would this show be? And we knew we wouldn't have David and Tom Gardner involved in the show. And really it sort of boiled down to, well, why do people come to The Motley Fool? Why do they come to the website? They, they kind of want to know what our analysts think. And so that we, that's sort of how we designed the show. Like, well, if, you know, if the analysts are really why people are coming to listen, then you don't need a show where they're like the host doesn't need to have a lot of opinions and they're not coming for the host. The host just needs to sort of 
to use a basketball analogy, just pass the ball around and, and keep things moving. And so then the market got worse. All of our hopes that like, oh, in January, the market will bounce back. January's a great, no, it just got worse and worse. And so while we were preparing to launch this podcast, the word came down from the highest levels of the company. We're just stopping all new initiatives of, of any kind. And we just need to focus on our core business. And so nobody, nobody can start anything new. And I was with Mac Greer and Steve Broido, Mac, the longtime radio producer, and Steve Broido, the longtime radio engineer. And we, we were the ones who were sort of planning what this podcast was going to be. And we were sitting in the studio and just sort of lamenting, like, oh, this, this kind of stinks. And God, it really wouldn't take that much effort. And it's like, it, it's really, it's really going to be pretty easy. And, and I think I might have been the one who said, I, I think we should just do it and not tell anyone. <laughs> let's just, let's just do it. And, uh, and we'll do it for a month. We'll do four episodes. We'll do, we'll do it for a month. We won't tell anyone. And if people don't listen, then we'll just stop and we'll pull the episodes down from Apple and we'll just erase them. And, but if people are listening, then we get to go to our bosses and say, okay, we know we weren't supposed to do something new, but we did, but, and look, and it's, and it's growing. And so uh, they said, sure, let's do this. So we, we got some co-conspirators and back then Apple had such a small team and there were so few podcasts that you had to submit an app. You couldn't publish in instantly. You had to submit an episode to Apple, which was the only podcast platform and they reviewed it. And so episode one doesn't go up. Can Epis you imagine that job, by the way? Right. <laughs> like, especially now, and admittedly, there's a flood of podcasts now, but can you be the, the guy that sits and listens to every <laughs> random nonsense that gets put up as a podcast? And I realize we're in that category. But uh, yeah, that would be an incredible job now. It would. And I, I think part of it for Apple was just sort of verifying publishers and, you know, I don't know how much quality control they were doing, but the fact remains, we published the episode on a Friday in February. I think it was Friday, February 20th. And the episode did not appear for an entire week. So we had no sense of, is anyone listening to this? And it didn't show up if you went to Apple Podcasts thinking, I'm interested in investing and business. I'm going to go and see what they have. It didn't appear. And so it wasn't until the second episode that episodes started showing up. And, you know, the phrase that uh, I use from time to time on the show referring to the audience as the dozens of listeners, that's how it started. Because early on, it was just a, it was a tiny audience. And I think by week three, the episode actually dropped. And we were like, oh, I think we're, we're going to have to shut this down. And then it went up and it kind of jumped up week four. And so we said, let's just do this for one more month see how it's going. And then we had enough momentum that I think by week six, we actually told our bosses like, Hey, we know we weren't supposed to do this, but we did it. And it's, it, it appears to be working. I mean, the irony of that, that you guys started now, now you're doing 365 podcasts a year. I mean, we take a few days off, We're <laughs> but essentially but you guys air something almost every day of the year. Yes. And it started with, we'll do four and maybe take it down, right. is amazing. And here we are almost a decade and a half later, and you guys are going strong. 
We are. And, uh, you know, I asked you the question about, you know, did you think you'd make it to 100? Because I absolutely didn't. When we started it, it just sort of seemed like, well, this, we'll do this. And I think in the back of my mind, I thought at some point this will stop and we'll do something else or we'll move to, to other programming or something like that. And over time, we did add other shows and other concepts and that sort of thing. And at the beginning of this year, sort of morphed into the seven-day-a-week show that Motley Full Money is right now. But, the, you know, those big number milestones always sort of very quietly blew my mind because I know what it was like when we started out. And there was no, it was the furthest thing from my mind of like, we're going to start this thing. We're going to do a hundred of these. We're going to do this for years. Like, no, that was, that was never the thought. I mean, I think we got to set a goal like that for a couple of reasons. One is that it had been a proven platform. You, you guys were pioneers in that space in the sense that it was not a thing that you do is you just start podcasting and put up hundreds of episodes, right? If you're if you're new at it and it's a new medium, um, there's no way to even understand that that's the path. And number two is I, I view it kind of like investing at this point, that it's about consistency. It's about process. It's about even, you know, continuing to do the thing, even on the days where you're like, what are we going to talk about this <laughs> week? Uh, which, you know, admittedly, I like... I'm often jealous of your show because you guys get to do so much market news. And while we can talk about the market, we're like limited in that respect. In in some ways, I think that makes some of our content a little bit more evergreen. But it's also like, man, I wish we could just talk about earnings this week. <laughs> this would be fantastic. But yeah, no, we, we, we got to have that goal because folks like you did what you did. But you guys have had episodes that I've listened to. And I've thought to myself like, oh, that's a that's great. That's like, that's a great conversation that's a great idea that they executed um uh, some of the podcasts that i listen some of the you know non-financial podcasts i listen to often involve interviews um uh, a lot of times with comedians and i've heard stand-up comedians talk about working on bits you know working on material and then they hear another comedian has a similar bit and sort of figuring that out i recently i heard pat oswald talking about in his early days of stand-up he had a bit about Hot Pockets. And then another comedian said to him, you know, Jim Gaffigan does a joke about Hot Pockets. He has a bit about it. You, you, like, you might want to check that out. Pat Oswalt went, saw Jim Gaffigan, and immediately was like, that's so much better than mine. Like, I'm done with Hot Pockets. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm done with this. And I've had that a couple of times listening to your show where I've had sort of like a half an idea that isn't tied to market news. And it's like, I think it'd be fun to do a thing about that. And then I hear your episode. I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Those guys nailed it. I, okay, we can't do that now. They nailed it. That's far too kind. Speaking of interviews, you do have a lot of great in-house personalities on the podcast. And I love just hearing those familiar voices week after week. You've also had the unique position to speak with a lot of big external personalities. Uh, are there any interviews or conversations you've had that stick out or things that you've learned along the way that are really memorable over the last decade plus of podcasting? Yes. Let me see how I can um, make this not a 10 minute answer. I, I have had the chance to talk to people like Michael Lewis and Dan Pink and Charles Duhigg, you know, authors who just are so good at what they do that they really open up so many minds to a new way of thinking you know obviously michael lewis with something like moneyball that kind of thing how excited are you for his ftx story 
Holy cow! I'm there I mean, for it. I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, no. I, I have to yes. interrupt. But that that I I'm like on pins and needles waiting for what he's going to write about what is happening and has happened at FTX. I I remember Michael Lewis came to the Motley Fool in I think it was 2009, and he had a book out, um, but it wasn't a financial book. I think it, it, it was his book about parent about fatherhood, which is a, a very enjoyable sort of light read, but. He took questions from people here at the company. Someone basically stood up and asked, like, what are you working on right now? And he basically said, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to tell you. Um, <laughs> this, was, this was sort of the latter half of 2009. So it, it, it was starting to seem like we, we appear to be through the worst of the Great Recession. But he did sort of hint at, I'm interested in what happened with the stock market in 2008. And I'm interested in... Um, what appears to be a very small number of people who saw it coming. And so, and then we get the big short, which is just, you know, such an amazing book. Um, and I always recommend it to people whenever people ask for an investment book recommendation, I always recommend that. Um, but to go back to your question, Dan, in terms of changing how I think or sort of affecting how I think, I would say Michael Lewis and Dan Pink. Lewis, from the standpoint of the big short, which I've, I've probably read maybe three or four times. I think is such a, a great example of groupthink and how pervasive groupthink can be in the investing world and how hard it is to fight against groupthink. Whether people have read The Big Short or seen the movie, you know, you get the sense of like, yeah, it doesn't always end well. Like even the people who are right, you know, Dr. Michael Burry kind of doesn't end super well for him in terms of the fund that he's running and, and that sort of thing. With Dan Pink, um, he's so much fun to talk to and is such a great writer and is such a curious person. And I think Lewis is the same way. Duhigg is the same way. Um, they're just curious about the world. And um, with Dan Pink, it's really around um, less about investing and more about sort of well, I guess investing in your health, investing in your life, that kind of thing. His book, um, which I don't remember the, the subtitle word for word, but the, the title of the book is When, and he looked into the, the science of timing. I, I read that book and immediately made a couple of changes to the way I live my life and just sort of, you know, day to day and things around health because it was just very eye opening. Wow. I have not actually read that one. And I, I like Dan Pink's stuff quite a bit. We did a show on the power of regret and, and how great that that book was and um was drive was his as well correct? drive yeah. to sell i think to sell as human yeah. is is also one of his and um when is a book i remember when i interviewed him about when i started the interview but you know before we actually started recording he we it did the usual pleasantries oh how are you how you know that kind of thing and i had interviewed him a couple of times before and he lives here in dc so i i felt like i could make a joke at his expense. And he's like, how are you doing? I said, I got to be honest, Dan, I'm pretty sleep deprived and it's your fault. And, <laughs> and I just admitted to him, I started flipping through your book yesterday, fully intending to just flip through it and just like, oh, I'll pick out a couple of ideas. And it was so good. I just got sucked into it. I read the entire thing in a single night, which meant I was up until, you know, past my bedtime. Great feelings in the moment. I've been there. And then just tons of regret the next day when you yeah. have to be productive. 
So I am a frequent consumer of audiobooks. That tends to be where I have the most time to focus. Uh, I don't know what that says about my level of ADD or, or ability to pause distractions, but when I'm in the car, uh, I like listening to audiobooks. And you have read one. Uh, in fact, one that we've talked about on our show multiple times, which is Morgan Housel's book. I'd love to hear what your experience was in recording that. Is that in a studio? Are you doing that from home? I mean, that's basically mid-pandemic that you're recording this audio book. What was that like? That was my pandemic project. You know, one of my daughters learned how to make sourdough bread, and uh, I narrated an audio book. It started... Well, it started before the pandemic because I, I've known Morgan since probably 2008, 2010, around then, and was one of the people who was encouraging him to write a book because he's such a great writer. And it seemed like such a no-brainer, like, yeah, th- write a book. It'll be good, and, and that'll be that. And somewhere along the process, I said to him, I'll narrate the audiobook. And I think somewhere in the back of my mind or somewhere in my body, I didn't think it was ever going to happen. And the reason I say that is because in March of 2020, he called me and said, I need your address because I'm going to, he was living in the area at the time. He said, I need your address. I, I just got the first, you know, they're not the final copies of the book, but I got the first drafts of the book and I want to drop one off so you can start getting ready to practice for the audiobook. And in that moment, my stomach just sank. And I just thought, oh my God, this is happening. This is actually going to happen. So he dropped off the book and I read it and it was so good right off the bat. I just, even, you know, with, you know, it's an unproofed copy. So there are some mistakes and there are a couple of blank spaces where graphs are supposed to be and that sort of thing. But it was clear to me that this was a great book and I really needed to figure out how to do this. And so I literally Googled, how do you narrate an audiobook?" <laughs> and found that there are several schools of thought of how you do that. There are some people who sort of go into the studio and just work it out and they'll do 10 takes of a sentence, that kind of thing. And they'll, they'll edit it later. And that sounds like fun editing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I thought, well, I don't want to do that. That sounds awful. And so I decided I was going to go the other route, which is I just want to get as familiar with this as possible. And so I ended up reading the book four times before going into the studio. I read it once. And the only thing I did that first time was I jotted down the page numbers where there were names that I did not know how to pronounce. You know, so it's like, here's a story about Bill Gates. No problem. I know how to pronounce Bill Gates' name. Here's a story about a 19th century Russian meteorologist. Okay, going to have to look that one up. So, you know, that was part of the process too, was just spending hours on YouTube and, and finding out, you know. And then the publisher finally sent me a PDF copy of the book that I could make notes in. And then I just went through the book chapter by chapter a paragraph at a time, making points of emphasis, just realizing like, oh, this is how this is supposed to flow. This is how this paragraph is supposed to flow. Or this is how this sentence is, or in this sentence, the emphasis needs to be on this word, that sort of thing. I mean, that's an incredibly detailed process. Yeah, so the book is five hours and 48 minutes long. And 
my time in the studio was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of eight and a half to nine hours because I really wanted to get as close to not editing as possible. And, but the total amount of time was probably somewhere around 70 or 80 hours. It's a great listen. It's obviously we, we appreciate the content of the work as well. I think that effort you went through shows. Uh, I really do because it, it comes across in the way that you would expect it to, right? I mean, everything you just said and hearing the behind the scenes of that, and I'd never heard you tell that story before, but that's, I can now hear thinking back on listening to the book, everything that you just said you did. for. Oh, it. thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was, it really, but it, I'm not kidding. When I say the first time I read the book, I really did feel pressure because I just thought, Oh my God, this is a really good book. And I can't screw this up. And I didn't, and, and I don't subscribe to audible. So I, it was new to me just sort of checking out that platform and seeing like, Oh, people rate the book, the writing of the book and they rate the performance. And I just thought, Oh my God. I, and then there's like an overall score. And I thought, this is such a good book. I, I, I can't let Morgan down because if I'm bad at this, that's going to be book, five stars, performance, <laughs> one star, hate this guy, average score, three. So, and by the way, there are a few of those, like there are a few of those <laughs> reviews there on always there. Are. Um, but for the most part, I'm, I'm uh, grateful that, the, that it worked out the way it did. That's an unbelievable story because you're the performer. You use the word performance. It is a performance, but it sounds like you're also essentially your director. You're creating notes for the reading and how you want it delivered. And are you getting any feedback in the moment or is it just, this is what I decided and how it's going to be done. And that's what's on tape. There was a lot of trust that Morgan showed me and at no point did he say, I, I, I need to listen to this. You know, I, I need to hear some cuts. And so I appreciate that about him. And then same for the publisher too, though. Craig Pierce at Harriman house was just, uh, you know, my, my, <laughs> my joke to Morgan uh, was that, uh, he had a conversation with them and said, I would like this guy to narrate my book. And I think their first reaction was, you know, we have people we work with who do this. They're, they're professionals. And, you know, in my mind, Morgan's response is, well, I don't want a professional. I want him to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there's plenty of examples of your work that they could listen to if they were wondering what you were going to sound like doing a book. There are, but it really is a different beast. It re like, it really is a performance. And I was, I had to break it up. I could only go, the recording is spread out over four sessions. I could really only get, do two hours. And then kind of like if you're exercising and your body gets tired, I just, about the two hour mark, my mouth just stopped working. I'm actually shocked that the sessions were that long because that, that sounds like a long way to go in, in a recording session as well. So, Ross, I know you don't have kids. I don't know if you read to your pets ever, but every night I read to my daughter and we got her the Star Wars anthology golden books thing. It has all nine episodes in this book. And I started with episode one for her and she would not let me stop. I think it was 180 pages. Oh, wow. And I read the whole thing to her. I was dead tired. I could barely talk and breathe. So I can only imagine what it's like reading a book out loud when there are stakes involved. Yeah. I would go home and uh, not interact with my family at all. Cause I was just, I was physically tired 
uh, mentally tired and, um, yeah, they, they were very understanding. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it hearing it, but at the same time, you would think the act of speaking while thinking of what to say would be more difficult than speaking while not thinking of what to say. There's something pretty constricting about this is the script and you got to read it as is. Yeah, we're not we're not interested in in your version yeah. of the accounting. Yeah, we're, there's no riffing here. Yeah, <laughs> not not a lot of banter going on while we're recording an audiobook. It's it, it's impressive. It's very cool. Yeah, and you did justice to a really good book. We recommend it to basically everyone who asks us. And now it's been what translated into every language in the world, essentially. I mean, it, yes. Unfortunately, I don't have to um, do those audiobooks. You don't have to do it again. <laughs> it's like it's like okay, you got to learn German. Here you go. That can I, that can be the next pandemic project. We we didn't prep for this question. I'm just curious. Have you been offered any other audiobooks since? So I got one other offer because I had to register on the Audible Exchange, which is a platform. You've written a book. You're looking for a narrator. You can go onto this platform and type in the type of narrator that you're looking for and that sort of thing. And vice versa. You're a narrator. You can say these are the types of books. And so I had to, and it's one of those platforms where you have to fill stuff out. So I just thought, okay. And it was a lot of nonfiction. I'm not going to do voices. I'm not going to do fiction, that kind of thing. And within a couple of days, I got an offer which cracked my family up because we do not have pets. And the offer I got was a book on how to train your puppy. (laughs) And I just politely wrote the author back and said, thank you so much for this offer. I really appreciate it. I would not be a good fit for this book. And I, I wish you good luck in finding a narrator. All right. <laughs> well, and, and just one other thing on that point. Part of what helped was Morgan just being such an accessible writer and Morgan writing in a way that I think a lot of people talk and think. And without naming names, there are successful authors of financial books who write in such a dense manner that if they came to me and said, I will give you $20,000 cash to narrate my book, I would very quickly say no, because that would, that would be a nightmare. Wow. I have a lot of those books sitting on my bookshelf. Yeah. I've read. I I buy them almost exclusively. That's that's what I seem to buy is books that are written in that, that level of density. So I'm just curious your view on, and I, I think just generally you have a pretty calm demeanor. You have a very calming tone to your voice. You're presenting a very calm message amidst a chaotic market often. Have you had experiences where you've had conflict in how you're actually feeling about it and then what you have to go present to the world? Because there, there are moments, both in the life of an advisor as well as somebody that's doing a show, where we're not always certain about much of anything, and that's not a good answer. Right. And, and I'm just curious how, how you've wrestled with that. It's absolutely something I've wrestled with, and you guys talked earlier in this conversation about something I've dealt with as well, which is an episode of the podcast is due. What are we going to talk about? And what you just touched on, Ross, is another version of that for me. And it's 
It's not what are we going to talk about. It's how are we going to talk about this in a way that's generally helpful, productive, um, that's not ranting, that's, you know, and, and sometimes for me, part of the answer lies in just getting the rant out earlier in the day, going for a run, ranting in my mind, and working through the things that I think, okay, well, I can't say that. You know, that's, a, that's not going to help anyone, but it's good to sort of get that out of the way and sort of uh, fire those bullets now and, and go into the studio knowing that this is not the first time I've thought through this. I've thought through it a few times. I've rejected a bunch of things because, yeah, there are times when certainly this year when the market is just sort of uh, reacting in ways, in negative ways that just, and I think I've mentioned this on Motley Fool Money a couple of times. There was a moment in the spring, it was late winter, early spring of 2022, and it was NVIDIA came out with their earnings report, and it was great, and they raised guidance, and the stock sold off 10%. And I thought, oh, my God, is that what we're in right now? Is that Like, is this happening? Because if this is what's happening right now, we are all in for a lot of pain. There were a lot of weeks this this year, and Dan and I talk every day just for our broader business, not just for the show. And there have been a lot of mornings where it's like, is it time for our daily teeth kicking? Like yeah. we're we're, we're yeah. here, we're ready. Like, open up the computer. What do we got? Because it's it's not going to be pretty. It's been a challenging year for investors. It really has. Yeah, it has, and I think that you know, it always helps to take a breath before you record something. It also helps that it's not live and you can edit if need be. But um, but more often than not, I find it's it's just helpful to to sort of work stuff out ahead of time and also try and get to the sort of like, what is the angle that's actually going to help people and try and anticipate like, well, what, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast, they probably have a similar set of questions. So what's a constructive way to speak to that? Hopping in the time machine, you mentioned you started the Motley Fool podcasts in 2009, early 2009, which wasn't a walk in the park for any investor. What was the initial tone of the first podcast? Those were back in the days where I didn't even know what a podcast was. So how did you address people when it looked like the world was falling down around us? It helped that we didn't start in September of 2008. I mean, weirdly, we started Motley Fool Money two and a half weeks before the bottom of the market. Wow. And so we're only going to take 1% of the credit for the, for the rebound there. Yeah. You fixed it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, everybody. Could, could you get on it now? Let's uh, go. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it, that's one of those situations where it's better to be lucky than good. Sure. But I, I, you know, my memory is that we really tried to lean on the educational part of things. It was also, there was some earnings talk. And also back then Motley Fool Money was a weekly podcast that was, 12 to 15 minutes long. So there was not a lot of time to fill. And it was really sort of cherry picking, like, all right, let's spend like three minutes on three or four different stories and then um, end on something more forward looking, that sort of thing. But I think trying to walk that line, and I'm, I've heard you guys do this as well, where you're walking the line between Assuming that the people listening have some level of knowledge, they are not complete novices, but also avoiding jargon, unpacking things that 
have a little bit of jargon attached to them when necessary. And so leaning into the education part now and then. Yeah, I like to equate our show, at least where we try to come in. I don't know. People can tell us if we hit this mark or not. I try to think of us as a 200-level class. Like if you've, if you've never heard about finance at all, you're going to struggle with our show a little bit. But I don't want it to be a graduate-level course. I want it to be accessible where people can come in and, and hopefully find it interesting and engaging and learn something and, and then also not feel like they're being talked down to either, right? We, that's, no, I, think, I, I, I agree thing. with that. I yeah. agree with that. I think it is a 200-level class. And you, you guys also um, avoid something that I think is problematic for financial television and for absolutely for podcast, which is leaning too heavily on numbers. Anytime people are going way past the decimal point, I'm just like instantly confused as a listener. You know somebody as their head way up their rear end when they start calling the decimal point spot? That's, that's, oh, that's how they do it on oh. trading desks. Oh, really? Woo! You, you hear somebody coming in there like 92 spot 435 and you're like, get out of here. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like, you know what? You know, you know what I have a lot of options on as a listener? Financial podcasts. Yeah. I can move on. I can find something else. That's true. Well, we have built our show on the backs of giants and you are one of them. Uh, We are incredibly appreciative. I can only imagine your distribution because I know what a pop we get when you have shined your light on us. Uh, (laughs) I don't think we needed to introduce you to our listeners because they all know who you are. You were the one that sent them to us. And uh, we're incredibly, incredibly appreciative of that. And uh, we hope to have you back on when we get another 100 under our belt. It was was my pleasure. And I, I wouldn't do it if I wasn't a listener and I wasn't a believer in your show. I've recommended it to friends of mine. I've sent episodes of your podcast to friends and family, just sort of saying like, Hey, you were asking about this topic. Listen to this thing. You're welcome. Well, whenever I need an ego boost, I'll call you into the room. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, to everyone out there, if you're not listening to Motley Fool Money, you should subscribe right now. It is a part of my daily rotation and I greatly enjoy it. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. All right, everybody. One more huge thank you to Chris Hill for joining us on this week's show. Dan, and a thank you to you. We made it, buddy. This has felt like quite a journey. We may still just be at the beginning, but it's been a lot of fun doing this show with you. Yeah, likewise. 100 episodes sounds like a lot, but it feels like it's gone very quick. An unbelievably ending like right on the calendar year end. That's kind of crazy. I don't think we could have planned that when we started this show in February of 2021, but who knew? No, not at all. And honestly, it's been made much better by the fact that we have such an engaging and great listening audience. So thanks to you all for being active with us and sending in all your questions and comments. We love getting them. And I think that's going to keep us going for the next hundred. Absolutely. We are looking forward to 2023. It would be easy to say that 2022 has been like a a tough year. Uh, I think for a lot of folks investing wise, uh, it's been a tough year for folks personally in some cases, and uh, I'm looking forward to good things to come. So truly full of optimism about what's coming both for our show and for hopefully the markets. I realize there's a lot of negative speak out there right now, but I hope you're taking some positive vibes into 2023 because I do think there's good things coming. Yeah, I second that. I look forward to 2023. And speaking of 2023, we have a January mailbag to plan. So get your questions in at checkyourbalances at outlook.com if you want to be featured on an episode. <laughs>
Thank you to everybody for listening this year. Happy New Year. Celebrate safely and with family and friends. We'll catch you on the next one.